There are these three questions that I have been thinking about for quite a while. And when I ask them, you're going to think you know why I've been thinking about them. You're going to think specifically that they have something to do with our political climate, but they don't. Well, at least not directly. That's not why I began to think about these three questions. It has nothing to do with that, though it reflects on our political climate. The primary reason I've been thinking about these questions is that the way you answer them reflects how you think things get done in this world and what you think your own role in this world is. And what I've seen, this is in my own life and in conversations with others, is that the way we answer these questions discriminates against a lot of us. That the way we think things get done in this world does not leave room for the way we are. So often we change or adapt thinking that we need to become something other, to achieve goals or make a difference in the world or impact those around us. Or on the other side, sometimes we just pull out thinking that we cannot be those things, that we don't have what it takes to change or influence or push against injustice. You ready for the three questions? Well, first, why do we choose the heroes? We do. Why do we elect them? Why do we celebrate them? Why do we emulate them? Why do we choose the heroes we do? Second, what do we want heroes to do for us? Because we choose them thinking that they can achieve some goal, make something happen. So what is it? Is there something consistent? Why do we choose them and what do we want them to do? And finally, what do the heroes we choose say about us? Because I think that they are reflections of something in us, reflections of fears or values or maybe hopes, and maybe even reflections of how we understand power. And so that means at some level that we choose heroes, set them up on a pedestal, and then think that we need to be like them in some way. So what do the heroes we choose say about us? This is The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Day in Salt Lake City, Utah. This is a podcast exploring theology and culture like it matters, because, well, it does. But hopefully exploring those things in a way that you actually want to listen to. Today on the pod, we're going to be trying to answer those three questions. Why do we choose the heroes we do? What do we want them to do for us? And what does it say about us? But I think to do that... We actually have to look at three options, three stories about heroes, three narratives about heroes, narratives that you will see crisscrossing and moving throughout our entire culture, throughout every story, every movie, every book, everything that you see, these narratives are crisscrossing and running throughout them, and they offer us different versions or different answers to these questions. So we'll break up the show into three acts. And in each one, we'll explore a different hero story. First up, Act 1, Pick Your Wahlberg. The oldest and maybe first hero myth we know of comes from Babylon, a culture that lived parallel to ancient Israel. And their hero story resembles the best of superhero movies today. And like all great superhero movies... This ancient Babylonian story 
has a villain. The villain in this comic book style story is Tiamat. In mythology, we'll refer to her as a chaos monster. She is the second century version of the Joker. Her primary goal is disorder, disruption, and chaos. And like every good supervillain, she has a legion of disposable minions at her command. The text that her story comes from calls them huge snakes, fierce dragons, serpents, mighty demon, fishmen, and bullmen. Everything you want in a supervillain. Tiamat reveals the first tenet of any good hero story, which is that there is some great obstacle that needs to be overcome, some fray, some enemy, some problem that needs to be solved. Now, this story is interesting, and it presents amazing pictures of villains and monsters that are archetypal of all comic books moving forward. But that's not the primary reason we're discussing it, because what we see in this mythology is the roots or the underlying of true fears and realities. Tiamat and her army of disposable minions are representative of what an ancient culture, and honestly what our culture, actually fears. People don't fear fishmen, though that would be terrifying. They fear disorder, disruption, chaos. It's things not going the way we expect them to, plans falling through. For a second century Babylonian, it might look like drought or crop failure or disease. But don't think that we have evolved beyond them. We fear the same things. We fear dreams not coming true, scholarships disappearing, not getting the job or the internship that we want, or relationships falling apart. We fear the economy failing. We fear the refugee and migrant crisis. We fear terrorism. The monsters haven't changed. We've just given them more sophisticated names. So, what do we do about this problem? These obstacles that are in front of us? Well, the hero story tells us that we either need to find or become a hero of power and grit. Someone who is able to battle and subdue the chaos. In this battle with Tiamat, the hero is the storm god Marduk. And if she is the perfect villain, he is the perfect hero. In every way, a modern superhero. He's charismatic, famous, good-looking, and intensely powerful. Marduk, our Babylonian Superman, courageously enters the fray and battles the villain. And at the climax of the conflict, he sends a storm wind to deal the final death blow to Tiamat. Then, and here's where things diverge a little from modern superhero myths. Marduk uses the body of Tiamat to forge a new world order on top of the old. Now, it's weird, but the implication is clear. That to establish a culture of order... To deal with chaos and what we fear, we need violent and powerful heroes. All of our stories today say the same thing. To defeat the Joker, you need Batman. To overcome Voldemort, you need Harry Potter. To defeat the Sith, you need the Jedi. To save the American experiment, you need George Washington or another presidential candidate. Pick your monster. It always needs a hero. 
And this leads to the third and final tenet in the hero story. We need heroes because they have power. Washington overcomes the British with military and tactical prowess. Steve Jobs rescues Apple through genius and powerful personality. And Marduk defeats Tiamat with the power of the wind. This is the hero story. There are problems to be overcome. So we need a hero because heroes have the power to overcome the problem. It's a story that's celebrated in our history books. It's played out in every action movie and superhero movie and by every Mark Wahlberg character ever. But here's the thing. Like the story of Marduk and Tiamat, the hero story is a myth. And it is a myth with big consequences. Because the thing that makes our heroes capable also makes them impossible people. Steve Jobs' temper is as legendary as his genius. And every one of our favorite superheroes have to create false identities to fit in. This is true of all of our heroes. We love cops who don't play by the rules. Any Mark Wahlberg character. We love superheroes who can't quite control their powers. Vigilantes who fight and hunt for good. Somehow Harry Potter is mysteriously connected to Voldemort. Dexter is a serial killer who uses his lust for blood for good. Steve Jobs built apples through naked will. George Washington, William Wallace, Napoleon. All in the name of some good cause built legacies through violence and bloodshed. We put up with it. Because we believe that to overcome chaos, you need power. But this brokenness, this darkness is ominous. Because the hero with unresolved issues poses a threat. Victor Hugo writes, A lot of men have secret monsters like this. An ache they can't feed, a dragon that gnaws away at them, a despair that haunts their nights. Such a man looks like any other comes and goes. You do not know that he is fighting a parasitic pain inside of him, a thousand teeth living inside the miserable wretch and killing him. You do not know that this man is a bottomless pit, where the water is still but deep. And from time to time, a disturbance no one can fathom shows on the surface. A mysterious wrinkle puckers up, then vanishes. A bubble of air rises and bursts. It's not much, but it is terrifying. It is the unknown beast breathing. The first hero story, or myth, is the one that is marked by raw intensity, power, and ambition. It is the one that is so regularly celebrated and so regularly inviting us to participate. But it is also one that is so often discriminating against us. Because if you're not that kind of person, in fact, in most scenarios, if you're not a man, you don't get to fulfill this narrative, this story, or this myth of heroic leadership. But it is not the only myth or story that invites us to participate. There's another one that I think is actually more popular today, maybe with my generation. Which leads us to Act 2, Life of Pablo. (laughs) 
if you know me, then you probably know that I listen to a pretty decent amount of Kanye. In fact, at Missio, there is an ongoing bet about how often I'll reference Kanye in a sermon. And right now I'm batting, I think, 100% because I have always at the least found one way to pull him in and reference him in a sermon. And part of the reason for that is I like his music. But the other part is I think that he's an interesting person. And that what we get to see documented in his life through his music is really fascinating. In Life of Pablo, the album that Kanye released February of 2016, he puts a lot of these things that he's wrestling with, a lot of these things about his nature on display in his music. I think actually the raw intensity of the album, the messiness of it, is all part of that. But one of the questions that he's asking, or maybe making us ask, is which Pablo is Kanye? Is he Pablo Escobar? Pablo Picasso? Or even the Apostle Paul? They are three vastly different characters, but... They are all three heroes or leaders, and they all make an impact on the world. And in asking a question of which Pablo is he, he's asking a question, I think, about how his impact has been made and what legacy he'll be leaving behind. If it's Pablo Escobar, then it's a character who, like in the first hero myth, has wielded his incredible power and violence for his own personal gain. But if it's Pablo Picasso, then it is someone who has creatively and innovatively influenced the world, still in some ways for his self-exaltation, but in a totally different and unique way. And it is the second way, this Pablo Picasso way, that is at the heart of the second hero narrative. In large part, this story might just be seen as a response to the first one. It's represented by characters like Pablo Picasso, Hemingway, Kanye West, even people like Bernie Sanders, who instead of leading with raw power or coercive authority, this is a person who influences with creative and innovative ideas. Instead of being on the top of hierarchy, this person rejects hierarchy. Instead of assuming title, this person tries to transcend them. Instead of being something like a president or a CEO, this person will be a chief innovator. Instead of being a pastor, they'll be a cultural architect. And I have to admit that right off the top, this is the myth I want to buy into. It sounds so compelling to me. But where the first one struggles with its use of power and violence, I think this story struggles with substance. Both narratives make a god out of something. The first one out of power and accomplishments, but I think this one, this creative influencer one, makes an idol out of image. One of my favorite poets says it this way, I am as deep as a baking pan, but I stretch wide in all directions. It'd be nowhere is as easier to see than our political news conversation. 
We spend more time talking about tweets than candidates' policy. Or we talk about the mad disses that one candidate had on another one, or the crazy things that this candidate is doing or this person is doing. But we never actually get to the substance of anything. What we get instead is entertainment and hype. And that's what this myth peddles, is hype and image. And instead of offering real change, it turns constituents or parishioners into consumers. It reduces people into what they can buy or see. This happens in what author Mark Sayers calls the society of the spectacle. And he writes specifically, quote, The society of the spectacle is a culture built upon illusion, distraction, and entertainment, which runs from the inevitable storms of human sinfulness, injustice, and brokenness. The society of the spectacle attempts to protect itself from discomfort and pain by creating self-contained worlds of comfort. So instead of substance, we get distraction, and instead of help, we get hype. Kanye, in his song, No More Parties in L.A., says, I feel like Pablo when I'm working on my shoes, and I feel like Pablo when I see me on my news. And I think that's the chief problem with the life of Pablo, is that it is everywhere, but it offers nothing. So, where does that leave us? If the way of the violent revolutionary is a myth, and the way of the artistic and creative innovator is a myth, what way do we have to actually change the world and do something? What way doesn't discriminate against so many of us that calls all of us and invites all of us? Well, I believe the answer to that question is the way of Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, uh, two disciples come to Jesus and they ask him a question, which I think is actually rooted in this false story, or either of these false stories of what it looks like to be a hero and to make something of the world. They say, hey, Jesus, when you come into your glory or your throne, can we sit at your side and rule with you? They want, which is also what so many of the Jewish people around Jesus' time wanted, was for Jesus to be this heroic, revolutionary leader, this famous influencer. The one who with power and might and grit would battle the Romans and rescue Israel from oppression. This is what everybody at that point wanted. Probably, in fact, why they rejected Jesus in the first place. Because he would not be the type of king they wanted him to be. Instead of taking up the mantle of being the victorious, revolutionary, violent hero and inviting his people to be that with him, Jesus tells his disciples to drink my cup. 
which is a weird way to respond, but it is not the last time that he'll say it. There's context to it. In Matthew 26, verse 39, he'll say, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. For Jesus, the cup represents his fears, at least in part. It's a symbol for the way of the cross, the thing that he is about to endure when he says this in Matthew 26. It is a symbol for suffering. But instead of trying to vanquish it or defeat this legit fear like a revolutionary or violent hero, he says, your will be done. In the midst of his fear, he chooses to trust Every story has a way to deal with fear. The first one says that we can try and subdue it, vanquish it, conquer it. The second, I think, says that we should insulate ourselves and others from it. But Jesus doesn't do either of those things. He enters into fear, but not trusting in himself, but trusting in his Father. And Jesus calls and invites his disciples, his followers, you and me, to do the same. Now, it sounds crazy, but how can he do that? How can he possibly invite people to trust in him in the midst of fear? Well, it's because the Bible has its own version of chaos monsters, of Tiamat. In the book of Job, this monster is called the Leviathan. The author of Job describes it this way, saying, quote, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook, or press down its tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Behold, the hope of man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. Quote. At this moment in the poem of Job, Job's life is falling apart. The Leviathan, this chaos monster, is turning all of his plans and hopes and dreams upside down. And to that, God responds by saying, No matter how hard you try to control chaos, you can't. You cannot subdue the unknown or overcome the things you fear. Eventually, even the most heroic of leaders are overcome. Steve Jobs died. The apple could fail. So what does God tell Job to do? Nothing. Instead, God tells Job about himself, about how he created the world, how he told the waters how far they could go, and how even the great Leviathan lives in submission to him. The psalmist will later describe it saying, even Leviathan is your plaything. We spend so much energy trying to protect ourselves from what we fear, insulating ourselves, trying to amass enough power or strength to keep all of it at bay, when the reality is we can't. It is a fruitless action. And the Bible and the life of Jesus is saying we don't have to. That the Creator is bigger than the things we fear. That He is big enough to carry and remove that weight from our shoulders. Or to say it the way the psalmist does, God is big enough to make playthings from your chaos monsters so that you don't have to operate out of fear, but can operate out of trust. Now, going back to the Mark 10 passage, after Jesus tells his disciples to drink his cup, he says that they shouldn't think about power and leadership the way the world does. 
That instead of being like the world's leaders who rule and wield power over others, that they should assume the posture of servants. And that that would actually make them great in the kingdom of God. See, both of our previous stories say that you should rely on either power or authority, influence or fame to get things done in this world. And it's important to say up front that none of those things are actually bad, that you can be a creative and innovative person, and you can even be a strong-willed and ambitious person. The problem is that we have made these things into ultimate things. And here, Jesus is reducing them and making instead service and humility the way you wield those other things the ultimate thing. This is what marks his life. He could have amassed wealth, power, and authority. At every turn, people are trying to make him king, but instead he chooses to take the form of a servant. And at every turn, Jesus lays down his rights to empower others. He submits to his Father's will, knowing that the world did not need more celebrities or revolutionary heroes who use violence, but instead it needed servants. One of the places that I struggle with this the most is when it comes to racism. I want to look at it through the lens of heroic and powerful leadership. Like I can solve this problem. And I think I do that because I'm a white dude. And it's easy for me to think about problems that way because I've been able to do it with all sorts of problems in the past. But the issue is that what we have seen historically and what I've seen in my own life is that this only creates more problems because at the end of the day it keeps power with me what we need in this world is not white dudes to hold on to power it's for people like me to share power to humble myself hear stories confess and repent sin to serve but i also tend to look at racism through the second story and struggle with that as well because servant leadership requires me to give up notoriety it's no longer about a public platform but about the hidden habits of people about institutions and systems Uh, recently i was on facebook and one of those memory things came up where it shows you things you have done in the past and in 2010 i had posted a joke about white privilege and today i'm really ashamed of this but the first thought i had was man I cannot believe I said that so much before it was cool to talk about white privilege. And that was me putting my image before service. It was me putting my own platform before service. It was totally irrelevant, and it lacked depth. My biting, cynical Facebook joke is pointless without true service, as modeled by Jesus. Now, finally, the last thing that Jesus tells his disciples in Mark chapter 10 is the most counterintuitive thing at all. He says that he, the person that everyone is hoping will rescue the world through power and fame, not only came to serve, but to lose. That he would not secure victory through demonstrations of power and grandeur, but the opposite, through sacrifice. This is so the opposite of the other two narratives, where the end is always about winning, where it's about securing the throne, getting the job, growing famous. 
But Jesus, in his way, totally changes it. He changes the ends and the means. Instead of wielding power or fame, he chooses sacrifice. Instead of accomplishment or the glory of victory, he chooses defeat. Sometimes you'll hear the cross referred to as the victorious defeat because it is the place where Jesus was defeated, where he gave up his life. The one thing that heroes and influencers never freely choose. But what we see is that in submitting himself to the Father, in serving, and sacrificing, and trusting, Jesus secured in his defeat the greatest of all victories. The victory over our fears, struggles, crises. So that you and I would know that fear never gets the last word. Choosing defeat, Jesus did what no one else does, what neither myth will ever do. He won. And now, he is inviting us into this radical, counterintuitive alternative. A way of trust without the burden of fear, a way of humility and service that values others above our own accomplishments or platform in a way of counterintuitive victory that sacrifices and in the end truly wins. You've been listening to The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Day in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information about the podcast or the church, check out our website at missiodayslc.com. And again, thanks for listening. If you would, go ahead and rate us on iTunes. It strangely helps. And more importantly, share us with someone you think needs to hear what we're talking about, wants to be a part of the conversation, or has similar questions that you do. Thanks a lot. See you next time.